Now, going through the motions. Going through the motions. Back when I was 13 years old, I had my first experience of an American theme park. I think it was Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. And there's one ride I will never, ever forget. It was called Alien Encounter. We were led into this large, dark room. We sat down around this tall, circular glass chamber that was, was in the middle of the room. And inside, there was a scary-looking alien. And when the ride started, this commentary came across the loudspeaker. It started talking about this alien that had been discovered, how it was extremely violent. It had killed the team that had discovered it, blah, 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 blah. But then suddenly, the lights go out. The room is put into pitch black darkness and the speakers, they hiss overhead with white noise and the room begins to shake. My chair begins to shake. Emergency sirens start wailing. Red lights begin to strobe. Smoke comes up from the floor and through the haze I see from my seat that the glass chamber in which the alien was sitting has broken and it's empty. The voice comes over the loudspeaker, shh, don't make a sound. The alien's attracted to any kind of noise. Don't move a muscle. If you squirm an inch, the alien will know you're there. Now, my dad, by this point, who was sitting beside me, had either fallen asleep or he was laughing his head off. But I completely lost it. I jumped in my seat because I heard the alien growl behind me. I ducked down when I felt the alien breathing down my neck. There were these silly air jets in the back of the seats screamed at the top of my lungs to everyone else in the room, shut up, shut up, stop making noise. And after a few minutes, I'm desperately praying, please, God, don't let the alien eat me. I was really going through the motions. Of course, there was a guy in the back room somewhere sitting behind a control panel, probably eating a donut and pressing buttons, smoke, lights, air jet, alien noise. But I was a total sucker for it. I was taking everything way too seriously. I lost sight of the bigger picture. It's just a ride, Tim. Someone's in control. No, I was going through the motions. I was overtaken by my immediate surroundings. So far in Revelation, Jesus has been addressing his church, who have also been going, as it were, through the motions They're being deeply affected by their immediate circumstances. We've seen two extremes for Revelation 1 to 3. There was the church at one extreme like Smyrna, faithfully serving Jesus but suffering greatly for it. And Jesus encourages them to endure an even harder time to come in the hostility of the world in which they live. And they're doing well but no doubt wondering, are we really safe? Are we really secure as we endure all of this, even facing death for the sake of Jesus? And then there's the other extreme. There's the church like the one of Laodicea. Uh, They were indistinguishable from the world around them. They appeared rich and strong. But to Jesus, in his eyes, they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Because in their complacency, they had abandoned Jesus and they were rejoicing in other things. Or having an easy time in the world, but without life in Jesus' eyes. And both these churches, they need to see the bigger picture. 
They need to be reminded of who is really in control and what it really means to have life. So whether you're serving Jesus faithfully at the moment and feeling the heat for it, or you're starting to become a bit complacent about Jesus and starting to grow fonder of other things, this vision in Revelation 4-5 to is vital for us as a church because here we have the bigger picture. We have the bigger picture. Come with me to Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must, first, what must take place after this. John is is called up to see the rest of history from heaven's perspective in the spirits, this vision given to him of all that must take place from John's day until the end of days. But this vision here, it starts not with the world in which he is living, but the heavens that are above. It's as though here John is getting a privileged peek at the control room of all creation. What does he see? Have a look in verse 2. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. John sees this awesome throne in the center of the vision. Things are not out of control. God is in charge. He's on the throne. As we work through this chapter, we're going to see this throne again and again and again, 13 times. Uh, And all of the symbols and the images, as strange as they may appear to us, they serve to teach us more about what it means for God to be on the throne. And we're going to break it down under three headings. The appearance of the throne, the company around God's throne, and the worship before his throne. Start with the appearance of the throne itself. Look in verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Jasper was almost certainly a white stone, either an opal or a rough diamond. The Carnelian is a scarlet red gem. And the emerald is green. We're quite familiar with that one. And it appears to us this emerald in the form of a rainbow, which is actually more like an iris of light. And it encircles the throne in the center of this vision. What are we to make of this rich display of beauty and color? Uh, The best analogy I've heard of, really, that comes close to understanding it is the crown jewels in the Tower of London. You've been to London, you've been to the Tower of London, uh, you'll know if you've gone to see the crown jewels, you enter into a, a long passage that finally goes underground into a chamber where the jewels are displayed in all their glory. And there are two walkways. The first one's right in front of the glass case where the jewels are housed. You can't stay there very long. There are guards constantly pushing you along. You can get right up to the glass, but you have to move quickly. There's a second walkway, though, just three feet behind. You can go there, and you can stand there for as long as you want, and just stare. Stare at these glorious treasures encrusted with the most precious stones known to man, sparkling under brilliant white light. And if you stop and just stare at one of these jewels under that light, and you just tilt your head slightly to the left or to the right while keeping your eye on the jewel, 
you see the most glorious refraction of light as these jewels sparkle and shimmer. That's something of what John is seeing on the throne. It is a being clothed in incredible light, which is shimmering with spectacular glory. And the, the, the beauty of it, it's actually beyond any literal description. Uh, this is the closest John can come to it, a magnificent light, refracted by the most precious gems and awe-inspiring sight. This is a symbol of God's glory. This is a symbol of everything that makes God great. And it's beyond comparison. We just get a taste of it here, and we will continue to as we work through this chapter. But the description we note here, God is glorious beyond words as he rules from the throne. He is glorious. And in verses 5 to 6, the throne itself is described. Have a look down, verses 5 and 6. Lightning and thunder issue from it. Uh, Seven torches of fire and a sea of glass lie before it. And these these three symbols, they all communicate the same point. Uh, First, there's the thunder and the lightning before the throne. We're not really that scared of storms in KL today, are we? In fact, we quite enjoy just watching them. Even if we're at a close, uh, we're not too far away from them, we just enjoy the safety of our modern shelters, and we look at these amazing storms, the lightning, hearing the rumbling thunder. But friends, no one got up close and personal with a thunderstorm in John's day. They were really feared. Storms destroyed homes in John's day. They washed away precious crops that could destroy communities. They brought the fear of death upon the nations of John's day. Not fascination, not delight, not, oh, isn't that pretty? No. Thunder and lightning speaks of the fearful presence of God before his creation. We've got some good biblical examples, haven't we? Think of Sinai. God comes to meet his people, Israel, in Exodus 19. Just read verse 16 from that chapter. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled with fear. Or when God appears to his people, they are scared. And we have the seven lamps identified with the seven spirits of God. Remember that symbol seven, the number seven revelation? It stands for, dare I test you, anyone who's been with us for a little while, seven means fullness, completion, totality. That's what seven means. And here we're told that seven torches representing the seven spirits of God are before the throne. The fullness of God's spirit, his agent that works his will in creation, brings it about. So again, there's a sense of a distance between the throne of God and the world in which we live, isn't there? The creation over which he rules. The Spirit's his agent, but the throne is removed. And then we have in verse 6 this sea of glass like crystal. We're going to spend a little bit more time on this one. Now today, we commonly think of glass as a transparent material, a bit like the windows behind me. Hopefully we're not being too distracted by what's going on over there. But that's the kind of thing we think about when we think of glass. Something I can see through very clearly. In the first century, that wasn't the nature of the glass that they could make. That's why it says here in verse 6, this sea of glass is like crystal. The, The glass that they could make in John's society in the first century would have been full of imperfections, flaws. 
It wouldn't have been a clear material. And so when light hits a crystal, as this sea is described, it sparkles. It glistens. It's not transparent. You can't see through a crystal when when light hits it. And so here we basically have a sea of murky, glistening glass before the throne. Can't see through it. God's throne is obscured from our view in this world. Again, the sea, it's another symbol of separation between God and us, his creation. Thunder and lightning, the sevenfold torches of the Spirit, the sea of murky glass, they all tell us something of the transcendence of God, the transcendence of God, that he is far above us in every way, and we should fear him rightly. We should revere him as his creation. God's good, but he is not tame. He is not domesticated. The only right and wise thing to do is to stand in awe of him, not downsize him into something we can better handle, like a, oh, a God who would never judge, a God who would never take the suffering and pain of his world seriously, uh, an impotent fuzzy old granddad up on the throne. No, God is not tame. And the fear of him in his transcendent glory is the beginning of all wisdom. Whatever the rulers of our day are doing, whether good or bad, their plans cannot influence or affect God's will. He's far above them. And all are going to give account to him. Everyone. God's glory is beyond words. His transcendence is to be revered. Then we have the company around his throne in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And then later in verse 6b, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So here... We have the throne in the middle, and there are two concentric circles coming out from it. Uh, The first circle are these four living creatures we read about in verse 6. And they are on each side of the throne, front to the side and behind. And again, what we're seeing here is images that are drawn from the Old Testament, like the thunder and the lightning. Well, here we have these creatures. We have to go back to the book of Ezekiel and the beginning of his prophecy. He received a vision of God on his throne and he saw four creatures that in many ways match the descriptions of these ones. And Ezekiel, he received that vision in his day to assure him as God's prophet that God had not abandoned his people. Oh, Israel in their sin had been sent into exile at this point. But the point of the living creatures was to communicate to them, God has not abandoned them. That this, wherever they go, he will never ever be beyond their reach. It's not that God was restricted to the land of Israel and his rule. No, these creatures that Ezekiel saw symbolized here, the boundless authority of God. He's not restricted from ruling over any part of his creation. Notice again what we're told about these living creatures in verse 6. They're full of eyes in front and behind. Eyes in Revelation? Knowledge. Speaks of God's omniscience. Nothing takes place that he's not aware of. He's aware of everything that's going on in his world. Every part of it. Every land. 
And his boundless knowledge and authority, it's seen in the forms that these four creatures take. It was seen in Ezekiel, and it's seen here in John. The lion, considered the mightiest beast of the field out in the wild. The ox, the strongest domesticated animal of John's day. The man, God's chosen steward and ruler for all his creation. And the eagle, the most majestic creature, the bird of the air. Boundless knowledge and authority. Then we have the outer circle, these 24 elders. And there's a bit of debate about this. Some think that it's uh, these guys, they represent God's people united and raised to heaven before the throne. But actually, if you see their role in these chapters, I think it's quite unlikely. Uh, Down in 5 verse 8, they hold golden bowls of incense that represent the prayers of the saints. And so they are in some way distinct from us as God's people. I think they're probably a higher angelic order, and they are worshipping God before the throne, but they do represent God's people in one sense. There are 24 of them, much like the 12 tribes of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament church. As these angels worship God before the throne, they reflect the worship God receives from all who acknowledge his authority. And we see they have authority as well. We're told they wear crowns of gold. But then see what they do in verse 10? Halfway through, see what the elders continually do in worship? They cast their crowns before the throne. Oh, they have great authority. But they still rightly submit to the higher throne. God is the ruler of the highest court in heaven. And so nothing takes place in his creation outside of his sovereign will. So what we refer to as his omnipotence. He is omnipotent. He is in complete control. He will always have the final word. God is omniscient. He's aware of everything. Nothing escapes his attention. He's omnipotent. He rules over all things without question. That's what we see here in this incredible company around the throne. And then finally, we've got the worship, the activity going on before it. And we see it in the words that are sung to God on the throne, verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We read those words earlier, not just in Revelation, but back in Isaiah, didn't we? The same words that Isaiah heard God being praised in the temple. In our Old Testament reading, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As Isaiah witnessed God on his throne. And the foundations of the temple shook and Isaiah was rightly terrified. God is fiercely holy. His purity is so great it makes our sun look dark. It's so awesome that in comparison it would make all of world history seem like the blink of an eye. Basically, his holiness is beyond great. And because it's so great, it consumes anything that is not holy and pure. That's why when Isaiah was brought before the throne, he screamed in fear, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell with a people of unclean lips. I'm not worthy to be here. And he knew that God is so pure, so holy, he cannot tolerate impurity in his presence. So he was scared. God is utterly good. He is utterly holy. And the living creatures end by singing verse 8, who was and is and is to come. 
Every authority that we've known in this world has an expiry date, doesn't it? The 2016 presidential elections are constantly in the news. Sorry, two terms, Mr. Obama, and no more. And even if some of our earthly rulers that we're more familiar with don't have term limits, they still face the certain reality of death, like all of us. Oh, no earthly ruler will sit on their throne indefinitely, no matter who they are. But God's throne is always occupied. There are no term limits with him. He knows the future better than we know the past. He is the Lord of time, who was and is and is to come. Friends, this is the God in whose presence we gather every Sunday at Smack. You let that sink in? This is the God in whose presence we gather and worship together at Smack each Sunday. Glorious beyond words, transcendent above every earthly rule, omniscient, nothing escapes his attention, omnipotent, nothing takes place outside of his will, utterly holy, consuming any darkness in his immediate presence by his awesome purity and eternal, sitting on an unshakable throne and it will never be displaced. What should our response be? Well, look at the elder's song in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. God alone is worthy to receive all glory because he alone brought everything, including us, into existence. He alone reigns over all things now. And as those whom God has so mercifully and graciously brought close to himself in his son for us, we need to ask ourselves, is this song that the elders sing, is that the theme of my life as a member of God's people? Is God at the center? Is he on the throne of my heart right now? Do I recognize that he and he alone is worthy to be the boss? Is his will what makes me tick each day? Maybe we've been a Christian for some time now and we've grown a bit cold. We've not seen for a while the awesome God who has redeemed us and brought us before his glory to serve him. We've become complacent. We've, We've started to become a little bit more distractive and take greater pleasure in other things above God and his will. Oh, 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 God can have his way with everything but my love life. Or my attitude to possessions. Or my reputation before my non-Christian prayers. Or, that, or just that one sinful habit that I just don't want to kick. Just don't want to do it. Friends, not only is that idolatry, but loving something else more than the God to whom we owe everything, it leads to disappointment in the end. Nothing can take his place. Nothing will satisfy our hearts. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. We have a Savior in his Son from start to finish. But the fruit of our life in him consists of putting God first above all things. Treating him rightly. And so delighting in his will to his glory above all else. And of course we know, don't we, our world tragically lives against that truth. 
God's throne is not recognized by most. In sin, mankind wants God off the throne, don't they? Suppressing the truth about him because we as mankind, we want to take his place. Rule ourselves and our world calls that freedom. We deny God the glory he deserves and we pretend we're number one. We can rule the world, we can rule ourselves. But in reality, it is the tyranny of sin. And sin's effects are horrific, not freeing for our world. Just give you one example. There are so many. I was shocked this past week, and she's been in the news for the past couple of weeks, about a site called AshleyMadison.com. Their tagline is, life is short, have an affair. Life is short, have an affair. They run a dating service with a terrible difference. It is engineered to assist men and women to cheat on their spouses. And it was in the news because more than 32 million secret memberships have been hacked and exposed for all the world to see. And sadly, there are Malaysians on that list, British too. Tragically, some very famous Christian personalities are also on it. 32 million worldwide subscribed to a service that facilitates adultery, encourages the breakdown of families, the betrayal of spouses, the neglect of children under their care. This is the kind of freedom promoted in the secular society of sin. Life is short. Have an affair. It's not freedom. It's chaos. It's misery. It's a bondage that our world desperately needs to be freed from. And so we come thankfully to Revelation 5. Who is worthy? We see the good news that God has not left us in the crisis and the mess of sin. Let me read from 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. John sees this scroll being held in the right hand of God on the throne, but it would have been like no scroll he's ever seen before because we're told it has writing both on and within. That is, it is a double-sided scroll. But the scrolls, the papyrus scrolls that John's, uh, the society that John lived in used... They were not double-sided. You could only write on one side. It was fat. It was rough on the other side. It was impossible to write on. Just a one-sided scroll. That's what John was used to. But this scroll, writing on both sides. In other words, this is the final authoritative word of God. There's no room to add anything to this scroll. It's God's full and final plan for all creation. To restore all things back to the way they should be under him to the glory of his name, including us. Bring us out of sin and death to glorify him under the blessing of his rule once again. But you see the scroll, it's sealed. Sealed with these seven seals. As we work through Revelation 6 to 8, we're going to see the seals broken systematically. We're going to see God's plans of salvation and judgment unfold. But here the scroll is still sealed. And so see what happens in verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
And this great search begins in all of creation, the heavens and the earth, to find one who is worthy. Who is worthy to open the scroll to start executing the plans of God for all creation? But verse 3, no one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. No strong angel can open it. Bring about justice and reconciliation between God and man. No mere sinful man can do this and live. No mere creature is capable. So what does John do? He weeps. He weeps in verse 4. He's longing for our world to be sorted out. He's longing for evil to be judged, for the reign of sin and death to end. But none of that can happen until one who is worthy can be found. But then John hears something. Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Someone worthy has been found. What are we told about him? First we're told he's the lion of Judah. All the way back in Genesis 49, We see Jacob blessing his sons and he describes his son Judah as a lion's cub and that the right to rule would not depart from him until all have bowed the knee. And now this elder speaks of a lion of Judah who has overcome, who is worthy. Then he uses another title, the root of David. That's a phrase that we see in Isaiah. Used when he can see all of the kings of Israel before him and they're about to be cut down to size. Even though they seem like mighty trees, they've been a waste of space in their sin. So Isaiah spoke of how the axe is laid at the foot of the tree and it's going to come down. It's going to put an end to the kings of Israel. But then in Isaiah 11, what does Isaiah see? We're told that he sees the stump of Jesse, the royal line of King David. A shoot will come from that line. An heir would take the throne and he will bring about God's plans for peace. The angel says, don't weep, John. Don't weep. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's conquered. So John, of course, what does he do? He naturally turns to see this great lion, this awesome king of God. And what does he see? Verse 6. What does he see? It's a genuine question. What does he see? Anyone? A lamb. Good, you're still, some are still with me. A lamb. Yes, a lamb. In scripture, the lamb is associated with weakness, vulnerability, suffering. You remember the Passover lamb of the Exodus offered in the place of Israel's sin so that their firstborn wouldn't die under the judgment of God. The suffering servant of Isaiah who bears the sins of the people. He's described as a lamb led to the slaughter. And here before John, there is a lamb who has been slain standing between the living creatures and the throne. You see how John describes him in verse 6? He has seven horns. Horn representing authority. Seven, fullness. This lamb has the fullness of all authority. Seven eyes symbolizing supreme knowledge. He has the authority and knowledge of God himself. Jesus, 
God's son is both the sacrificial lamb come to take away the sins of the world and the promised king who would inherit all nations. Share in the glory of God as God's son himself. You see, it's as if we're being shown here from heaven's point of view as these two great and contrasting images the line of Judah and the Lamb, as they merge together into one, that the cross is the decisive turning point of all world history. The cross is the decisive turning point of all world history. It's the victory by which Jesus fulfills God's plans for all creation. That cross, on Good Friday, the world at Jesus' feet mocking him, the sky going dark, and Jesus hanging there, being abandoned by his disciples. Who would have concluded that that was a victory that would have ramifications for all creation? And yet from heaven's perspective, as Jesus hung there, as the sins of the world were placed on him, our sacrificial lamb, it's by that cross that he becomes worthy to fulfill all God's purposes, to restore all things back for his glory. You see the new song that the elders sing in verse 9, because the Lamb has conquered? Verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. By your will you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, Jesus in the cross, he does destroy the power of Satan, of sin and death, in his own body, slain for us. See, all the power that Satan ultimately has to destroy us is to accuse us of sin before God, sin of which we're guilty, to say to God, hey God, God, see, see Tim, see Tim over here, look at his life. Look, in your great omniscience, because you know everything, look at his life. Look at all the greed. Look at all the pride. Look at all the lust, look at all the hypocrisy in his mind and in his heart and in his actions. All the ways that he's failed to reflect your glory and your goodness. All the ways in which basically he's failed to worship you rightly, God. Tim doesn't deserve life before your throne. He deserves hell. He deserves to come with me. That's what Satan says in accusation. And our only defense from start to finish is that the lamb who is worthy has died in our place already, has taken the full penalty of sin in his cross, the line of Judah, the lamb who was slain, with the result that all sinners who depend on him and acknowledge him as king, verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The victory over sin is won. It's paid for. The lamb who was slain is on the throne. And we can now be reconciled to God by coming under his lordship along with all the rest of creation one day. We could be members of his kingdom once again. But we still wait, don't we? We still wait to experience the victory of the cross in all its fullness. We still live each day in a world full of sin and death, of suffering and pain. We still carry corruptible bodies and we we battle with our sinful desires. We long for new life in the presence of Jesus our Lord. And yet in our closing verses, John is given a glimpse of that future. See in verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Friends, this is what all of history is leading up to. God and the Lamb will receive all glory and worship one day. Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them, Satan, the world that serves his wicked designs, all will bow the knee and then bear the eternal wrath of God for sin if it's not dealt with. But for those of us who have been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb, who've repented, who've trusted in Jesus as the Lord who was slain for us, will know the joy and peace of his presence before the throne forever. No more tears. No more pain. We are restored to the God we were made to know and enjoy forever. And so how should we respond again as we wait? We had our synod meeting this past week. If you don't know what synod is, it's when basically all of the uh, representatives of the churches of the Anglican Church in West Malaysia and all of the the pastors uh, get together for their annual meeting. That's synod. We've had it this past week. And we started our three-day meeting by splitting up into groups to discuss how we as the Malaysian church today should prepare as we face an increasingly hostile environment for our faith. And I was so encouraged when many men and women stood up in turn and they reminded all of us as a group that as Christians we worship a lamb who was slain. And so for now we live in a world that will reject us as it rejected him in sin. What are we to do? We are to continue serving Jesus and his gospel whatever the cost might be, and we can do that. We can do that because we know the Lamb now sits on the throne. We know that no matter what, one day every knee is going to bow before him. Brothers and sisters, our security is rooted in Jesus, not the ever-changing circumstances that we face in the here and now. That was such an encouraging way to start synod. Because it basically reminded me of the bigger picture that we have here. We don't need to go through the motions. We don't need to allow ourselves to be shaped by what we experience in the here and now, whether it's a matter of complacency, growing cold in our love for Jesus because we're distracted by the fleeting comforts that this world has to offer, or whether it's a matter of fear like me freaking out on that theme park ride. We mustn't lose hope if and when we suffer for the sake of Christ's name. No, we need to remember always the bigger picture. God is in charge. The Lamb has and won and will win in the end. One day, we will share in his glory forevermore. So friends, in this coming week, let's live for that day. Let's live for God and his mighty Lamb as we look forward to our ultimate tomorrow in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of, in your word, receiving in this vision of John's a taste of how glorious you are how mighty, 
how perfectly in control and worthy of all praise you are. I pray for us this morning in the light of what we've seen that you would humble us, you would strengthen us and encourage us in the light of who you are and in the light of the great gospel you have made possible for us in your son. You would strengthen us to be serving him, to be making him known, to be looking forward to the reconciliation of all things and living for that day, to be rightly fearing you, our glorious, transcendent, holy, eternal God. Strengthen us in these things, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.